0: And I'm going to read from the first verse, Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive... She's called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This continues what we've been looking at over recent weeks, recent chapters here in Romans, where Paul is so concerned that people, the people to whom he is writing should understand just what the grace of God means. What, what it means to be living in the grace of God. In chapter 6, verse 14, he has made a statement. He says, you're not under law, but under grace. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that you now disregard all laws? What does it mean? Paul has come at it from different angles looking at it one way, looking at it another, simply because this is the very heart of the Christian message. This is our gospel. This is our good news, the gospel of grace. People very often make references to the faith community or the the great world religions as if they're all really basically the same, just different slants on the same basic truth. No, the Christian message is not just part of a faith community. It is unique. We were singing earlier, uh, his name, unrivaled, stands alone. There is only one God and one way to God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's all about grace. So what does grace mean? Is all discipline then legalism? Does sin really matter if we're in the grace of God? These are issues that Paul has been looking at. And now he looks at it again in a different way in chapter 7. And as we come into chapter 7, it's ever so important that we keep in mind the wider context of what Paul is saying. We don't, if we home in on the details, we'll miss our way. So Paul is continuing to consider this matter of grace and law... What, what does law do? What can't it do? What, what does it mean to be in grace? And he starts with some general principles, just to illustrate what he's saying. And it's important to see that these two principles that he refers to in the section that we read, verses 1 through to 6, these two principles are illustrating a point. When you see an illustration, you look at the illustration and then look at the point. The danger is that you home in on the illustration and miss the point. So they're illustrating a point, they're general principles. And the first one is this matter of law. He says, don't you know, brothers, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? That's a general principle that law only applies to you as long as you're alive. It's irrelevant to start discussing, as some people do discuss, well, what kind of law is he talking about here? Is he talking about the law of Moses? Is he talking about law in general? That's irrelevant. It's just a general principle that the law can only touch you as long as you're alive. It could be the law of Moses... It could be British law, it could be European law, it could be tax law, motoring law, any kind of law. It only touches you as long as you're alive. It's a general principle. Death ends our obligation to law. If you are due to appear in court on a particular day and you die the previous day, you are no longer obliged to appear in court, it's obvious. Death ends obligation to law. Second general principle, applying that matter, he says, for example, verse 2, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. The second general principle is marriage. Marriage, he says, is ended only by death. Now, we don't home in on the illustration and say, oh, is he saying then divorce isn't possible? That's a general principle. So he's not teaching here about marriage, he's teaching about law and grace. So we look at the general principle and he says marriage is ended by death and some other things also will come through, but marriage generally, the general principle is ended by death only, it's exclusive and it's intended to be fruitful. These are assumptions that he is making before moving on to apply those principles Also, of course, underlying what he's saying here, a further thing that he's assuming about marriage is that there is a matter of authority here. The law has authority over someone as long as he's alive, and a married woman is bound to her husband. He is assuming that a a wife is subject to her husband and so on. But these are just general principles. He is not teaching about marriage. He is not teaching about law. He is teaching about the gospel. The point, then, is that death ends all ties, all obligations to both law and to marriage. That's his general principle. Having stated that, he homes in particularly (coughs) on this matter of marriage. Uh, so he raises the example in verse 2 and then continues to use that example right through to verse 6. And he speaks there about two marriages. <coughs> so he speaks of a fir- the first marriage and then a death that takes place and then the second marriage. And the first marriage, it's a marriage of a woman to someone who is both the best husband in the world and the worst husband in the world. Incidentally, as I'm preaching this, I'm going to try not, well inevitably I will look around and see what married couples sitting next to each other kind of eye one another when I make various points. I did notice actually someone eyed When I said, both the best husband in the world and the worst, I saw a wife turn and look at her husband. I didn't notice at which point she did that. But I'm watching. (laughs) So, it's speaking then about marriage. uh, And and someone who's married to, to Mr. Law. The Law. Both the best husband in the world and the worst husband in the world. The best husband in the world because he is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Always right about everything. Whatever subject is addressed, the law is always right. A perfect husband knows everything about everything and is always right in whatever he says about everything. I don't see any wives now looking at her hus- husband with great admiration I thinking, that's you. Perfect husband... He's the worst husband in the world because he always points out where his wife is wrong. He is right about everything and points that out continually to his wife, where she's wrong, where she could be better, the right way to do things. He's always right And he is always making that clear, making clear where she's wrong, where she could be better, uh, how you should be, and so on. But in doing that, never lifting a finger to help. He's always right, points out where his wife is wrong, but never lifts a finger to help her. Just always the accusing finger, points a finger, but never lifts a finger to help the best husband in the world then, and the worst husband in the world. For the wife then, married to that husband, there is a problem. And it says in verse 5, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. The problem for the wife says controlled by the sinful nature, or the footnote in this version says, or the flesh. It's a difficult concept to translate. Literally, it means the flesh. But if it says controlled by the flesh, and we just think it referred to our body, so the translators say sinful nature, what it's talking about is our humanity where sin so easily dominates. And it says we're controlled by that. When you are controlled by that, Married to this husband, the best husband in the world, the worst husband in the world, how did you react? Well, he's telling you what's right, but he's not helping you. You're controlled by the flesh. The flesh dominates, and there is a major problem. There's nothing to check. The inclinations, the tendency of your human nature. And you're living with this impossible husband. And it's a fruitful marriage. Marriage is intended to be fruitful. And this is a fruitful marriage. It says, we bore fruit for death. Married to law. Law creates a reaction. A reaction of rebellion, resentment. But also, there's the the death of just feeling, I am no good. I will never do this. Everything I try to do, there's always that accusing finger pointing out, well, you could have been better. Because actually, what is required is perfection. And nothing I ever do achieves that. So this relationship, husband and wife, Mr. Law, always right. And you're dominated by just being human. And so you rebel against that. There's resentment, but a general sense of, I am really no good. I will never make the grade. I will never jump through all the hoops. I will never come up to expectation. What's the point? What's the point? Bearing fruit for death. Remember what Paul is talking about here? He's talking about religion or grace Many people see religion like that. It's a matter of jumping through the hoops. It's a matter of trying to fulfill people's totally unrealistic expectations. I can't be good at everything I do. I've always done something wrong. And some people view Christianity like that as just a religion that is always pointing out you're not good enough. You've failed yet again. The standard is there and you are here And somehow you're never going to make it because no finger is ever lifted to help you. So there's the situation. Rules never help us. Laws don't help us. Other people's expectations don't help us. They don't produce anything that pleases God because the whole thing is lifeless. That's the marriage. That's the first marriage. Now, what Paul is saying here is, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free. She is free to marry someone else. She can't marry anyone else while he's alive, but if he died, you're free to marry someone else. The problem here, of course, is that Mr. Law is not going to die. So Paul, in the interest of the truth, turns the illustration round in verse 4. And he says, so my brothers, you died. Or a better translation, you were put to death. So he twists the story. A wife can't remarry as long as her husband is alive. So you died. (laughs) You were put to death. So that you could belong to someone else. Only death Paul is saying, as a general principle, he's not expounding teaching about marriage and divorce or whatever, general principle, only death ends a marriage. So you died. You were put to death. The illustration then is kind of turned on its head. We die so that we are then free to remarry. You were put to death through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another. (coughs) And that, of course, is referring to all that he's been uh, dwelling on in chapter 6. Back in chapter 6, dealing with the same issue, he says in verse 3 of chapter 6, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll be united with him in, in his resurrection. And so on. It's talking about the death of Christ. He died having identified with us, identifying with us who are sinful. He takes our sin. He then suffers the consequences of sin that we deserved. He's dying in our place, but identifying with us. So when he dies, it's as if we died. The identity that we had, he takes. And he suffers the consequences. That identity died at that point. At that, up to that point, we were a sinner. We were under the law of God, condemned by law. We died. We were put to death when Jesus died. His death was a substitution He's dying on the cross as a substitute for the countless millions who will believe in him, accept him as their savior and say, you are my substitute. You are suffering what I deserve. When he did that, we died. Now Paul is saying, death ends a marriage. Even your death. So you were put to death through the body of Christ. When Christ is dying, you're dying so that you are now free to remarry. When we die, we leave a grieving spouse. Mr. Law has been bereaved. Mr. Law has lost his hold on us. He's lost us forever. No longer can he accuse us. No longer can he tell us what to do. We've died. A baptism... Is a, is a bit like a funeral service, partly the first bit going under the water. It's also a resurrection. But And there's a grieving spouse there at that funeral. Law has lost you. When you're cruci- When you're baptized, you're showing his crucifixion for you, and law has lost his hold. You are free. And only then are you free to belong to another, because... Bigamy is not allowed. You cannot be married to Christ while still being wed to the law. A death has to take place. Or He doesn't use the word bigamy here. He refers to adultery. If her husband dies, she's released from the law. She's not an adulteress. If she marries someone else while he's alive, she is an adulteress. We cannot be wed to the law and belong to Christ. It is impossible. Get hold of that, because many don't realize that. And they attempt to belong to Christ, while still in their conscience, they are wed to the law. It doesn't work. That is adultery. Paul uses a very strong expression there. It is adultery. You cannot live like that. No, we died. Having died, now we come to the second marriage. You died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. We have, as it were, a new husband. And he is named in a very significant way that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead. That's the one we belong to now. Him who was raised from the dead. Why does Paul use that phrase instead of just saying to Christ? Well, he's making a point. To making a point about being in Christ, Christ is now raised. We're in Him. We're in that whole new way of living, that whole new quality of life that Jesus has. Up to the cross, prior to the cross, and up to it, He is identified with humanity. He is identified with the law. He becomes identified with sin, our sin. And he certainly identifies with death. Up to that point. The law, sin, and death. That is the experience that he voluntarily entered into. And that is our experience. He died. From the resurrection on, no longer identifying with sin, law, or death, he is now (coughs) living a whole new way of life. It's a whole new quality of life. It says in chapter 6 and verse 10, the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. That's what it means to be in the one who re- was raised from the dead. Living to God. Not living to the flesh. Not living to sin. Not, li- but not living to law, but living to to God. That's his life now. And having conquered death, it's an undying life. We died. but Now we're joined to the one who has conquered death. The one who lives forever. We belong to him who was raised from the dead. (coughs) We've got a new partner. We are married to him. We are wed to him. We are living to God. And This is a fruitful marriage. That was always God's intention. Back in Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one and verse twenty eight. Jesus having created the first man and the first woman, he said, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. That was God's intention for a marriage. Be fruitful and increase in number. And here it's fruitful where we belong to another, Him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Previously, of course, we bore fruit for death. There was death in the whole thing. A sense of failure, a sense of condemnation, uh, or even pride, or whatever, but there was no life in it. Now to belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. This marriage is totally unlike the previous one. It is a very fruitful union and we are producing what God wants. Producing what pleases God. We're producing what the law could only talk about. What the law could only tell us about. But it didn't make it happen in us. But now we're in a fruitful union where what pleases God is formed in our life. Have you ever noticed when a couple have been married for any length of time, they actually get to be like each other in all kinds of ways now. But it didn't make it happen in us. But now we're in a fruitful union where what pleases God is formed in our life. Have you ever noticed when a couple have been married for any length of time, they actually get to be like each other in all kinds of ways. That can be good news, it can be bad news, but it happens. I often wonder what what I would have been like had I never met Mary, had I never been married to her. I can safely say I would have been a pretty unpleasant character because just living with Mary has changed me for the better, I hasten to say. And all kinds of, I can look back now to before I met her and before I married her, think of things that I thought, things I believed, things that I did. And being married to someone changes you. In my case, I would say changed me for the better. I shudder to think what I would have been like, but you will never know, and I will never know. We're wed to the one. We belong to the one who was raised from the dead. It's a relationship that changes us. It's a relationship that makes us to become like him. It's a fruitful union. Things are produced in our lives that could never have been there otherwise. We're learning things, but things are also imparted into us. So our, our attitudes change. Our ambitions change. Our way we talk to people changes. We're producing fruit for God. It's what God likes. It's what God wants. But it goes more beyond that. It says in verse Uh, 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law. The law just told us things. Now now we're in a union with Christ. Dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The old way of the written code produced fruit for death. But now we're serving. Yes, we still serve but it's the new way of the Spirit. (coughs) This marriage is totally unlike the first one. It's a new way. And it's a new way of the Spirit because the Spirit of God is in us, changing us. (coughs) It's the Spirit of Christ. We're wed to Him. His Spirit is in us, so we serve in a totally different way. Under the written code, it was, you must you should, you ought, you mustn't. And we saw all of that, the law telling us continually what's right, what's good, what we should do, what we mustn't do, and we couldn't live up to it. High level of expectations, we couldn't get there. What's the new way of the Spirit? The new way of the Spirit is not saying you must, you should, you ought, you mustn't. The new way of the Spirit is, do you know you can? It's not someone saying you can do it you know when sometimes there's something really difficult, something scary I mean imagine The thought horrifies me imagine a parachute jump for charity or something you've said you'll do it you're up in the plane maybe two people in front of you they've just gone and now it's your turn and you look at this open space and you think I can't do this that's what I think, and I wouldn't do it anyway. <laughs> I can't do it, and then someone says, "You can do it." You know, I can't. So that, that, that's, that's not that's not what the Spirit does. saying. You can do it. Now the Spirit comes into you, so you can do it. The Spirit comes into you, enabling you. It's not a, a voice from outside. That's what Mr. Law was—a voice from outside, but it, he didn't lift a finger to help. This is the new way of the Spirit where the Spirit of God comes into us, working in us to will and to do what pleases God. It's a whole new way of living. So we don't look at ourselves to see what we can do. We don't look inwards to see what our potential is. We look at our husband. We look at the one we belong to. And we see what he can do. And we see what his potential is and His Spirit is in us. It's totally, totally different. It's not freedom from all restraints, oh, you can do what you like then. No, we're still serving, but in a totally different way. It is no longer law. Now, one of the principles about marriage is it's exclusive. Bigamy is not permissible. Adultery is sin. Sin. If she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another. Having been joined to Christ, we don't go back to the previous partner. We can't go back, actually, because we've died. (laughs) But we don't go back in our affections. We don't go back in our thoughts. In other words, when we fail, as we do, when we fail, we don't suddenly go back to condemnation. We don't suddenly go back to the voice of Mr. Law saying, you shouldn't have done that. Do this and you will live. Sin, the wages of sin, is death. you have sinned. That's what law tells us. No, we don't go back to that. We remain faithful to grace. We remain faithful to the one we now belong to because we are wed to a Savior. Again, to refer to the two things that the lad said, he rescues us. That's one of the, the, great, the, the great revelation that came to Israel when they are slaves in Egypt. God says, I have come to rescue you. And you trace the number of times that is said through Scripture. I have come to rescue you. God's character is, He is a Savior. We're not wed to law, we're wed to a Savior. When we fail, we don't go back to the previous husband say, I can't do it. I, I, I always fail. I, I'm condemned. No, the scripture is going to tell us in chapter eight, there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation belongs to the first marriage. We're not in that now. We now belong to a savior who lifts us up, who shows grace to us who heals us, who stands us on our feet, not condoning what goes wrong, but not condemning us for what goes wrong. Because he's full of grace and full of truth. We don't live in the past. It is possible to come out of a relationship into something new, but in your memory and in your conscience, you still live in that previous relationship. And you still hear the voice of that previous relationship. Let's refer to the years I've spent with Mary, which has been for my great benefit. But one of the things that I've often had to say to Mary, and I hope it's okay to say it now, but Mary's upbringing was not good. Her, her mother was very controlling, very condemning, and so on. And certainly in the early years of our marriage, I would often have to gently say to Mary, I'm not your mother. Because that was the voice she was always hearing. A voice always condemning. A voice always belittling, ridiculing. And so I, I was not saying anything like that, but she would hear that. And we can often bring an old relationship into our present. There's a first marriage here, and there's a second marriage. In this second marriage, where we are married to the Savior, let's not hear the voice of the law let's come into an exclusive relationship where we say the past has gone. Yes, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so we're not hearing that voice anymore. We're not hearing condemnation. We're not hearing a voice denouncing us. We're hearing a voice that's altogether different. Yes, it's holy, but full of grace. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I'm the Savior. It's because you're no good, I've saved you. And I will save you. And nothing and no one can ever snatch you out of my hand. You are saved. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. Let's hear the voice of our new relationship. And not in that new relationship, keep harking back to the past. See, this is why Paul is handling this, the same theme, again and again, in different ways. Because we've got to get hold of it. Because nothing else is the gospel. This is the gospel. It is a gospel of grace. We must, therefore, not treat our new husband as if he were the old one. He isn't. He isn't. That has gone. Now we have a saviour who loves us, who, who intends to never let us go, and who intends to perfect what is started in us and is working graciously in our lives all the time and has even put his spirit in us to enable us to be what we could never be otherwise. This is altogether different. So Paul raises a big question back in chapter 6, verse 14, when he says, "'You're not under law.'" but under grace. What does it mean, not under law? This is what it means. We were under law. We died. Now we've come into the wonderful grace of God. And we're to enjoy this. We're to believe it. And we're to press on in it. Just seeing all the potential that is ours because the potential is His. Because of who he is, we're joined to him so that we bear fruit for God. That's the gospel. Adultery, bigamy, not permitted. We're either wed to law or we're in Christ. You cannot be both. That's why it's such a travesty that so many expressions of Christianity have become so legalistic. So many expressions of Christianity are full of condemnation, making up, making up laws. I, I read something just this week. Someone was saying, you know, anyone who doesn't pray for an hour a day, someone will never see revival. You think, where does the Bible say that? You know, we come up with laws. We make standards. Hoops, people have to jump through. And Christianity is so often full of you mustn't, you must, you shouldn't. No, 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 no. That's the first marriage. Now we're in the grace of God. The grace of God is so wonderful that we want to press on with God. It's not you must press on. I want to press on. And I can, because his spirit is in me. And when I fall, there is grace that scoops me up, puts me on my feet again, and says, I don't condemn you. Press on. It's wonderful grace. Beware of substitutes. There's only one gospel, and this is the gospel. Let's pray.